Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's uh, pray together as we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all our praise and all our devotion. And as we come into your word today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our minds and to our hearts. We ask that we would receive everything that you have planned for us. We ask that if there's anything that would cause us to to be deaf to what you are saying, that that would be removed here so we can receive freely. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us to become children of the Father. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. We're coming to the end of our three-week series on the life of David, which was a pretty quick little series through the life of David. We tried to kind of hit the highlights. We encountered, we saw David encountered God in the ordinary moments of his life, and we saw David encountered God in the wilderness moments of his life, and we're going to come into the third one today, where David encounters God in the brokenness of his life. When you think about the life of King David, you know, you probably could think of a few key moments in his life that stand out. You know, one key thing that I think often comes to our mind when we think of David is, is that phrase that he was a man after God's own heart, or that famous passage that when David is chosen, it says that the Lord looks at the heart, and David had a heart that was right, that God could use. You might think about David, you might go, oh, I know David, he's the one who killed uh, Goliath, right, conquered him in the name of the Lord. You might even remember David's mercy towards Saul, the man pursuing him in the wilderness, trying to kill him. And David, you know, multiple times um, had a chance to kill Saul, his enemy, and did not. There's a lot of amazing things you remember of David. But, you know, as we come into this today, another major moment in David's life is when we kind of acknowledge the elephant in the room when we talk about David, which is David's sin. His darkest moments of sin as he takes Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, uses her sexually and concocts a plan to murder her husband and cover the result of his sin. It's kind of like the elephant in the room, right? You've got what I kind of think of it as you've got this really jarring juxtaposition, of on one hand, you say, oh, David is a man after God's own heart. But also David assaulted the wife of one of his soldiers and then murdered a man to cover it up. How do you reconcile these things? What we don't want to do is minimize David's sin as we try and reconcile this. I think there's a temptation to downplay the sin of David in the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah because we don't want David's legacy to be tainted by this really dark moment. For example, how many of you have heard people refer to David's sin here as his sin of adultery? In fact, if you look into even my Bible, and maybe your Bible has this too, but if you go to 2 Samuel 11, uh, my Bible says it's David's adultery with Bathsheba. And so we're in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 today, but mine says David's adultery with Bathsheba. And that kind of minimizes what was happening here because we sort of think to ourselves, when we think of adultery, we think, well, yes, affairs are bad, But affairs do happen. And sometimes the sin of David is completely explained away. I've even heard of sermons that almost entirely lay the blame at Bathsheba's feet. They say, oh, Bathsheba was bathing in front of David in order to intentionally seduce him. This is really Bathsheba being in the wrong. And let me just, if you've ever heard a sermon like that, can I just say that's absolute nonsense? That's, that's just a fabrication out of the imagination of people who simply cannot accept that David, the man after God's own heart, 
committed grave sin. They can't wrap their minds around that. So what I want to present to you as we come into David's life here is that Scripture tells us that what David did was not simply an adulterous affair between two consenting adults. And I'm going to use um, Old Testament scholar Dr. Carmen Imes, uh, who's actually a professor at Three Hills uh, Bible College, Prairie Bible College, uh, just down the road. But I'm going to use her um, article from Christianity Today to kind of give us an overview of what the David and Bathsheba story is really telling us. She begins, we think of adultery as consensual by definition because of our modern usage of the word. We think of adultery as two consenting adults. But the Bible defines adultery as as the responsibility of the male head of the household to keep his hands off his neighbor's wife. That's Exodus 20.14, right? That doesn't mean a woman can't enter into some sort of sin, but the Ten Commandments are addressed to men by default. Men were told to restrain their strength for the sake of their community. And so this means in David's world, under the covenant that God had with Israel, David is solely responsible for his actions. He is the man that who, to whom the law is addressed to. He is responsible for his actions solely 100%. And Bathsheba is literally David's, David's neighbor's wife, which means she's completely off limits. Now this instant could be called adultery only in the sense that both David and Bathsheba were married, but not in that modern sense of this is a consenting, you know, long drawn out relationship. So basically the story that's presented in scripture to us is this, David saw, David wanted, David took. It's all David. But still some will say, oh, I don't know, because maybe, I mean, I've got even friends when I talk to them about what I'm preaching on and they're like, well, I think Bathsheba was, you know, up to something. Because they've heard it. I mean, they've heard it preached all the time. So some will say, well, didn't Bathsheba seduce him? First thing I want you to notice is I've heard sermons. So I I do sermon prep, right? And so I listen to sermons. And there's been a few times where someone says, Bathsheba was bathing on her roof. She wasn't. David was on the roof in the cool of the evening, as one does. He should have been at war. He should have been at battle, but he wasn't. He's on the roof of his building in the cool of the evening, bored. But Bathsheba's in the privacy of her, of her own courtyard. And we, we might wonder, okay, well, why is Bathsheba bathing where David can see her? Well, let me put it like this. In, in David's day, again, remember, there's no indoor plumbing. Bathing normally actually happened in public. People would normally go to a public place to wash off. And if Bathsheba's bathing in a public pool, then she can't be implicated for immodesty. And if she's bathing in the courtyard of her own home, her bath is actually more private than it would normally be. And sometimes we go, well, you know, she's got her clothes off and all this kind of stuff. Can I just tell you the text never says that? The text never says this because do you know, okay, Dr. Imes points this out. She says, I lived in a Muslim country for two years, heavily Muslim country. And there was no running, there was no plumbing in that city. So when people went to bathe, they went to the public pool, and even though there was very strict modesty rules, they wore big flowing tube skirts, men and women, and they washed in public, but it was still private. There was, there was no seduction thing happening here. That, and so there's a very good chance that at the culture of this time, Bathsheba is fully clothed and bathing. But David sees her and David summons her. And we go, does Bathsheba have a choice? David sees her and summons her. Does Bathsheba have a choice? Because her husband and her father are both soldiers under David's command. No one can refuse the king. 
So there's no doubt as we read this story that David uses his power and his authority over Bathsheba to have her come to him. There's no wooing of her heart. There's no slowly falling into an affair. There's no David sending roses and chocolates and striking up a conversation. It's David the king sees what he wants and says, men, go get her. Bring her to me. It's just a king demanding a subject come to him. David doesn't even go to her personally. He sends servants to bring her. In fact, scripture actually records for us, if you read it closely, that David didn't even know who she was until he wanted her. The servant that tells, the, David tells a servant, go and find out who she is. And the servant who comes back tells David, she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah. Do you think the servant is subtly trying to get across to King David? David, I don't know what you are wanting with her, but she's the wife of Uriah. He's making that pretty clear. It doesn't matter. David sends his men to bring her. And again, can you refuse the order of the king? Hey, the king wants to see you. You're going to go. Bathsheba's only words in the entire story are, I'm pregnant. And David's put her in a predicament. If her husband returns and finds her pregnant, she could be stoned for adultery. But the situation isn't her fault. David knows it. So David uses his power and authority as king to get her into the palace. She's got no say in the matter. So this is really David, David scheming and planning and David using his power and authority to get what he wants. And so the idea of two consenting adults engaging in a mutual affair is simply not what we see happening in the story of Scripture. And at the very least, there is a massive power imbalance here as David uses his power and authority as king to get whatever he wants. And so David's plan A to cover up his sin is to bring Uriah home. It's still early in the pregnancy. Uriah might think it's his own wife. But Uriah, going by the code of honor of the warriors in that day, will not go home. He sleeps on the doorstep. And so David doesn't know what else to do, and David orchestrates the plan to have him murdered, to have him killed by, you know, kind of making it look like it's in the thick of battle. And he tells his commander, when the thick of the battle is raging, pull the men back, but leave Uriah at the front, and that will kind of secure his death. Dr. Eim says, the clincher for me is this, is that the narrator who narrates the story of David here is unequivocal in blaming David. The end of 2 Samuel 11.27 says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's not the thing David and Bathsheba did. It's not the affair that David and Bathsheba entered into. It's the thing David did. And the prophet Nathan is clear in blaming David. Just read 2 Samuel um, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. It's all about the man with the power. Bathsheba is never reprimanded. And so modern sermons that try and pin the blame equally on Bathsheba and David are ignoring how God is telling the story. And it's ignoring the exegetical signals throughout this entire chapter that, hey, David has done some grievous sin. For David, as for every Israelite, the neighbor's wife is like a daughter to be protected and not an experience to be collected. And that kind of reminds me of what I was doing with Freedom 8848 and what Freedom 8848 does, which is saying there are all these men out there who see women as experiences to be collected, not as daughters to be protected. But, you know, obviously the Christian stance is that we're here to protect those who are in vulnerable situations. But David knows... David knows Bathsheba is supposed to be unavailable to him, but that doesn't deter him in the least. He summons her. 
And David has come to believe at this point in his life that because he has power, he can have whatever he wants when he wants it. Perhaps the most shocking part of the story actually comes after the murder of Uriah when David tells his commander, so David sends this letter to the commander saying, hey, I want you to to pull the forces back in the thick of the battle but leave Uriah at the front. And he writes these in the orders. He says, let this matter not be evil in your eyes. David knows it's evil. But what he's doing is he's attempting to redefine his own behavior as acceptable. If David had been the king of any other ancient Near Eastern country, who, no one cares. His actions would have been unremarkable. Kings can do whatever they want. You want to kill someone, kill him. Whatever. But David is not the king of any kingdom. He is the king of God's people. And they have a higher authority than David. David's power is not absolute. And he doesn't make the rules. Yahweh makes the rules. And so Nathan the prophet makes it absolutely clear that David has done evil in God's sight. 2 Samuel 12, 9. He says, this matter is evil in the sight of the Lord. So David first says, let this matter not be evil in your sight. And then Nathan the prophet says, what you've done is evil in the sight of the Lord. And David knows he's in the wrong. David's response to Nathan is simply, I've sinned against the Lord. David doesn't offer any excuse. He doesn't offer any, he takes sole responsibility. He's caught in the act. And David affirms that he is the guilty one. So where does a man who passionately pursued God go after his darkest sin and secrets are exposed by God's prophet Nathan? Is there any way forward after this? Is there any way to be restored? And the answer is yes. As Christians, we believe that godly sorrow that leads to godly repentance will be covered by grace and forgiveness. It doesn't excuse what was done, but it does open up a path of restoration, healing, forgiveness, and grace. When it comes to a story like David's of of grievous sin and abuse of power, the planning of a murder, we might want to simply cast David out because it's a really ugly story. And the deeper we dig into the story, the more you actually look at it, the uglier it becomes. And so we're actually forced into this place of tension in the story between God's grace and the need for justice, which is kind of a tension point that we're always at as Christians is we believe in justice, we believe in grace, and how do these things interact? And so maybe our temptation to downplay David's sin comes from this difficulty of extending grace to those who are clearly in the wrong, who have really and truly harmed someone else. It's hard to think sometimes of God's grace and forgiveness being available to people who are aggressors and perpetrators of violence and the abuse of power, right? Do you sometimes... Sometimes in my sermon preparation, I I read stories of people who've done grievous harm and they say, but now I believe in Jesus. And I go, well, thank God, but there's a part of you that goes, that's hard. God's grace is so widely and freely available. What do we do with justice? What do we do with the, the ones who are harmed by this? So rightfully, what I want to say is this. We don't want to extend a cheap grace to those who've done wrong, especially when they've harmed other people. We've seen cheap grace extended to perpetrators of sexual misconduct or abuses of power in the church world lately, right? We, we see that, you know, in the, now it's getting better, but, but previously there were people who were allowed to keep power and position and influence just because they said sorry for a past transgression. And we rightly think, well, is that really justice? Does grace give people a get-out-of-jail-free card? Are there no consequences for actions? So what I want us to understand about grace and forgiveness 
is that they bring us to right relationship with God. Grace and forgiveness allow us to find new life and eternal life, but grace and forgiveness do not guarantee avoiding the negative consequences that we might have because of our sinful actions. The Apostle Paul writes this, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. And Charles Swindoll basically kind of puts it like this. He says, grace does not mean sin's consequences are automatically removed. If I break my arm in the process of some sin, I can be forgiven the sin. My arm is still broken. The consequences remain. And so for some people, the consequences of sin might mean the loss of position or power. It might mean the loss of someone or something important to you as your sin has harmed them or severed the relationship and they say, I just can't come back to to what it was. Now, this isn't a universal rule. God gives a lot of grace. However, my, my own speculation in this leads me to think that those whose sin is not rooted in some past wounding or trauma Sin that's done by those who know better, who simply sin because they can and have a desire to do so, they may see greater consequences as the Lord disciplines them, not to hurt them, but to course correct them. As a pastor, I see kind of two ways that people might engage in sin. One is because they have so much wounding and trauma in their own life that they respond to life out of their own wounding and trauma. And I just see God's grace poured out in their life so much. And then I see other people who sort of have everything going for them and they just go into rebellion mode and they just choose to take what they want and have what they want. And oftentimes I see God's grace is still poured out on them, but they kind of live with some of the consequences of their decision making. So that's anecdotal, but that's kind of the way I see that working. But look at what the Nathan, look at what Nathan the prophet tells David about the consequence of his sin. He says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. That's key. The Lord has taken away your sin. But because by doing this you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David's household never regains its balance after this sin. Bathsheba's child with David does die and David's other sons engage in their own sexual sin which rips David's family apart to the point where David's son Absalom kills his brother Amnon. And then Absalom, David's son, turns the kingdom against David. And David actually has to flee, abdicate his throne for a time until his son Absalom is killed by his servant Joab. And so what you actually see is after the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, David's life goes into chaos mode and the golden era of his kingship begins to fade. This is not to say that all people suffer the same consequences for sin, but I do want us to be careful that in our urge to extend grace to people that we do not give grace cheaply, allowing people who are narcissists or predators to easily go back to their old ways. We're not looking for people to simply be sorry for wrongdoing. What we are asking, what the Christian actually asks, is for people to actively seek repentance. That even if there's consequences for their actions, they want to be forgiven and made new, but they say justice can be done as well. You ever heard the story of people who come to faith in Christ after being involved in some kind of criminal or gang activity, and they say, the Lord has laid it on my heart to confess my crime? And you go, that's a bad move, man. 
But it's because the Lord is not looking to absolve you of the consequences of your sin. He's looking to make you a new creation. But a part of that might be owning your sin, taking responsibility for it and saying, whatever happens, I belong to Jesus now, but I'm willing to pay the price for what I've done. So what grace and forgiveness does is they set our hearts free from guilt. Grace and forgiveness make it so that our souls are not crushed by our own wickedness, and by God's grace, we can crucify those sinful desires and live our new identity as new creations in Christ. That means we have new minds and new hearts and new behaviors and a promised eternal life where sin will never have power over us again. And what we see in David, as as we're going to go into some of his Psalms, is that he deeply desires God's grace and forgiveness. And retaining his kingdom and his power is not as important to him as having his heart cleansed and washed by God's grace. David has what the Apostle Paul might call godly sorrow, a godly sorrow which leads to repentance. And so I want us to remember that repentance is not simply saying sorry. Sometimes we reduce repentance to that. Oh, they said sorry. I actually struggle with this with my kids all the time, right? They, they insult their sibling or they hit their sibling even worse. And we say, you need to say sorry. I'm sorry. Like, well, you're not, first of all, you're not really sorry. And second of all, I don't actually want you just to be sorry that you got caught. I want you to not want to do that anymore. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I got caught. I guess I'll say sorry because there's consequences to my actions. And godly sorrow says, I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be new. And that's what repentance is. It's from that Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind and change one's heart. It's a drastic change of direction. It means I was going this way, and now I'm going the opposite direction. I'm a totally different person. That's what godly sorrow is. A godly sorrow which leads to repentance. They want to be changed and made new. And the hope of the Christian faith is that with godly sorrow and repentance, you can be made a new creation in Christ. That you don't have to live in that place of of destruction and sin, but you can actually be made new and go a different direction by the power of Jesus at work in you. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. I've met with people who go, "I, I am trapped here. I don't know how to get out of this. And I say, if you come to Jesus to crucify the desires of your flesh, the desires of your heart. He says, we're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And that's what godly sorrow leading to repentance does. It says, hey, my old life is dead. I'm alive with Christ. I'm walking in a new direction. By the power of the Holy Spirit given to me, I can walk in newness of life and the renewal of my mind. And it's actually in that place of godly sorrow where we can encounter God. We can encounter God in that, that moment of brokenness. And brokenness is a state of the heart, right? It's a, it's a soft and contrite heart before God. And I would say brokenness for some people is the starting place to encounter God. It's when you suddenly get to a place in your life and you go, I have made such a mess of everything. How am I ever going to make it different? And that's the answer. The Christian answer is Jesus can make you new. You can be born again. You can die to that life and be raised to new life with Christ. Let's look at David. Psalm 51 is written after this great sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. 
Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. David recognizes his sin, his rebellion against God. It haunts him. He owns it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't defend it. He simply states the fact of it. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. And sometimes that's where we need to get to. We need to recognize our sin and rebellion. We don't all mess up as badly as David did. Some of you are thinking, I've messed up worse than David. And I go, I don't know if you did, but you might feel that way. But the point of brokenness is not to rank the level of your rebellion, but to simply be honest about it. I mean brutally honest. No filter, no spin, no justifying. Be honest about who you are and what you've done. We need to own our sin. Recognize the offense of it. How it hurt others, hurt ourselves, and was offensive to God. And once you do this, there's only one way forward. So once you have seen kind of your depravity, your wickedness, the sin that's led you to this place, once you own it, you realize there's, nothing, there's often nothing you can do to fix it. Think of David. David does not have a time machine. He cannot go back in time and, and not pursue Bathsheba. He can't go back in time and, and take back the order to kill Uriah. What's done is done. Uriah is dead. That's it. It's done. The sin has happened. He can't fix it. He owns it. He owns the rebellion, but he can't repair it. And some of us might have sin in our lives that we've committed that we go, there is no way to correct this. There's no way to repair this. There's no way to overcome it. I'll own it, but I can't change it. So what do you do with that? When you can fix the problem yourself, you don't need a savior to die for you. At least it feels that way. It's not true, but it feels that way. You go, I can make amends, I can make it better, but there are some things that have happened, maybe for some of you in your life, where you have made such a mess of it, you go, I can't fix it. I can't change it. Who's gonna forgive me? And that's the Christian answer. Your father has forgiven you through faith in Jesus. The blood of the son has covered your sin and washed you clean. I used to do step five talks, which if you've ever done Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like that, you know what step five is. Step five is the confession. And I've met with people and, and um, they come to the end of the confession or we get halfway through and they go, this person that I harmed is dead now, so how can they forgive me? I've already talked to this person in step four and, and they said that they'll never forgive me. So I've confessed to you, but who's going to forgive me? And you can see the crushing load of guilt that is on them. Who's going to forgive me? Because if they won't forgive me, I can't forgive myself. And even that's the thing, I can't forgive myself. Sometimes I've had people say, they forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. Who's going to set me free? And that's the Christian answer. Jesus will set you free from that guilt that you carry. Jesus will set you free. If you are in godly sorrow and you have desired to repent, then Jesus sets you free from the weight of sin and guilt. And so we all rely, like David does here, on God's unfailing love and compassion. But here's the thing about it. If we're not honest about our sin, we can't bring it to God. And if we don't own our sin, if we keep on excusing it and justifying it, sometimes I've met with people like that too, who they say, well, I was caught in this sin, but you know, really the reason I did this thing is because of this and this and this, and they're blaming, they're blaming, they're blaming. They're not owning it. And I go, I don't think you're ever gonna find freedom until you really own it, until you really get get inside yourself and go, hey, 
I did this because I'm selfish or I did this because of this. This is what I was, but I don't want to be that anymore. But if you keep blaming it, spinning it, justifying it, you're not going to get free of it. But David here, he doesn't do that. He just says, hey, I own my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. And then he relies on the Lord's unfailing love, mercy, and forgiveness. Later in that Psalm 51, David prays, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Once David owns his sin and calls it what it is, he comes to God to have God do what only God can do. We need to know what our part is and what God's part is. Our part is to own our sin, call it what it is, confess it, repent of it, say, I don't want this anymore in my life. And then God comes in and changes our hearts. I can't change my heart. There's things in me that if God doesn't do the work in me, I can't change it. I can fight with it and I can wrestle with it and I can identify it, but I need the very power of God at work in me to change me into Christ-likeness. And that's a process of sanctification. But God does this. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And just as a bit of a side note, Pastor Rob Bremer points this out. He says, notice that David did not cry out to God so he could keep his kingdom. He didn't cry out to God so he could preserve his reputation. That wasn't entering his mind. He cried out for a steadfast spirit and a pure heart so he could draw near to God. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And David knows he can live without a kingdom and he can live without his wealth and he can live without a reputation. He's done all those things as a shepherd boy, but he can't live without the nearness of God's presence. And that's how we can encounter God in the midst of our brokenness is going, God, I, I can't live without you. Confession allows us to experience God's forgiveness and grace. And what we find is that God does not abandon us in our brokenness. If we cry out to him, he steps into those messy and broken places to forgive us and to redeem us and to make things new. God does not abandon us in our sin. So I've met with Christians who assume because they've done this thing that God has cast them out forever. And I say that's just not the truth of the Christian gospel. God does not abandon you. David puts it like this in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession will not drive God away from you, but confession brings us closer to God. And God meets us in those places to forgive. David writes later in Psalm 51, you do not desire a sacrifice or an offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Now David understood the sacrificial system of the day. So it's kind of interesting that he says you do not desire a sacrifice because David knew that without, you couldn't have forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. But David also understood the heart of God. David knew that the animal sacrifice was supposed to show the people the depravity of their sin. It was supposed to make them see the penalty of their sin and rejoice that God allowed a substitute to take their place. But it was easy for people to lose the heart behind it and simply go through the motions of religious activity. But God didn't want religious activity to absolve sin. He wanted David's heart to be turned and cleansed and renewed. God didn't want an animal sacrificed as a token of atonement. He wanted David to return to him. 
God wanted unobstructed access to David's heart. And the lesson for us out of this part of David's psalm is that religious activity is not what God desires. God wants your heart. He wants you. Some people have an awareness of their sin, but instead of bringing it to God and relying on the forgiveness that is given to them, they say, I'm just gonna work really hard to make amends. They try and please God with a bunch of religious activity, but no amount of effort can make them feel forgiven. What really sets us free is bringing our sin before the feet of Jesus and internalizing the words of our creator and savior and hearing and believing the words internally, you are forgiven. That's what sets a soul free. I've seen people work really hard to try and be set free and it doesn't work. They need to internalize the truth of the gospel that you are forgiven. And so at the end of the day, God wants you. He doesn't want more of your time or your money or your service. He wants unobstructed access to your heart. And so brokenness is a posture of humility before God. It's not just about sin. It's about a heart that is soft before God. And a soft heart before God gives you an overflow of compassion. It gives you a sensitivity to sin. When my heart is soft, and it isn't always as soft as I want it to be, but when my heart is soft, I'm more aware of things in me that might hinder God's presence, that might grieve his spirit. As Dr. Rob Reamer says, embrace every opportunity to humble yourself, accept every opportunity to apologize, every opportunity to own wrongdoing, to make amends, to ask for forgiveness, to say you are sorry. Humility is the mother of all virtue and the entry point of all kingdom activity. And I think what Rob says here is vitally important in our spiritual practice. I want to have a soft heart, a broken heart before the Lord that says, I don't want to do anything that's outside your will and I don't want to do anything that's going to grieve you or hurt another person. And so when I say we encounter God in our brokenness, there's two ways this happens. One is the way we see with David. He ignores his sin until Nathan the prophet convicts him and then David, you know, his heart is broken from his sin and, you know, his heart is washed clean, his soul is set free. The love of God pours through him and into him. David encounters God in the midst of his brokenness. But there's another way, another posture of brokenness that simply asks us to have soft hearts towards God, to be sensitive to the leading of his spirit, to be quick to repent, to be quick to say sorry, to be quick to not offend others. And this posture of soft-heartedness allows us to avoid places where sin would ensnare us. And instead brings us to a place where we can have victory over sin as we walk in the light with God and with others. I'm gonna leave you today with two questions that I ask at the end of, of a week. I don't always do this, but at the end of a week, there's two questions that I ask in prayer, and it's actually from the prayer of examine, but I wanna give these two questions to you because they help us develop a soft heart before God. So the first question is this. It's from the prayer of examine, but it's, it's, the first question is this. Holy Spirit, bring to mind the people I interacted with this week. When did I speak words that were honoring to you? Thank you for giving me wisdom to do that. Were there moments when my words or actions towards others were ungodly? If so, forgive me and give me the courage to repent and make it right. Secondly, I ask, Holy Spirit, bring to mind the activities I engaged in this week. What were things that were joyful to me and pleasing to you? Were there any unguarded moments where my heart or mind wandered into things that were harmful to me and displeasing to you? If so, forgive me of my sin and renew me. Help me to change and become more like you. I'm gonna call the worship team up just as I kind of give us our final word here, but... Maybe this whole sermon, you've had some event playing in your mind, some sinful moment in your life that you feel trapped by. You've asked for forgiveness. You, you just don't feel like you're forgiven. I'd encourage you to come and find me or send me a message and, and I can pray with you through this and we can kind of work one-on-one -on -one through some of this stuff. 
But if you've had some kind of sin thing that you felt trapped by, I really want you to take these words to heart. The sacrifice the Lord desires is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So if you've got some sort of event in your life that kind of sticks as a big rock and you go, this thing that I did, first of all, can I tell you, you're not defined by the worst thing you've done. And secondly, I want you to know that God will not reject you. God will not reject a broken and repentant heart. God will redeem you. He will wash you clean. Jesus came specifically for those who are broken over their sin. Through Jesus, you are forgiven. So if you've got some kind of sin thing that you can't get over, I want you to hear those words. You are forgiven. Through Jesus, you've been given new life and your sin is not held against you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, We know that sin is so grievous to us and to others and of course so grievous and offensive to you because it it pulls us away from the will that you have for us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have courage to repent, that we would have the courage to walk in humility and walk in the light before you and before others. I pray for anyone here who has been wrestling with some sort of a sin uh, issue that they had either in the past or currently and they never feel forgiven and I pray now that they would know that you do not reject a broken and repentant heart, that you have washed them clean, that the sacrifice of Jesus was for them, that Jesus, you are the atoning sacrifice who atones for our sins and not only our sins but the sins of all the world and I pray that that would become a truth that leads us to freedom. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.